Open Globe Talk is a podcast series for aspiring ophthalmologists and trainees interested in obtaining education in global ophthalmology. Be part of this unique setup as we interview ophthalmologists around the globe virtually and get to create equity in service, innovation, and medical education. Welcome back to another episode of Open Globe Talk. I'm your host, Rosalind Thani, a fourth-year medical student at Campbell University and a current research fellow at the Duke Eye Center. In this episode, we are joined by our esteemed guest, Dr. Gulapali N. Rao. This episode is incredibly unique because not only is Dr. Rao our first international guest speaker, but also the founder of one of the top eye institutions in India. Dr. Rao is an Indian ophthalmologist specializing in cornea and is the founder and chair of the world-renowned LV Prasad Eye Institute, which is located in Hyderabad, India. His journey has been quite unique in that he has received training and has also served faculty roles in both the U.S. and India. Dr. Rao is the fellow of the National Academy of Medicines in the country. He has been honored by multiple awards such as the Padam Shri, the fourth highest civilian award in India, and obtained five honorary doctorates from Australia, UK, and India. He was also elected in 2017 to the Ophthalmology Hall of Fame instituted by the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Without further ado, I want to welcome Dr. Rao to this podcast. It's a great pleasure to have you, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, so just to kind of start off, I want to ask and uh, share with our listeners your professional journey and how you chose ophthalmology. Well, I had my medical schooling in a small uh, city called Guntur in the state of Andhra Pradesh, where my father was a practicing ophthalmologist. Uh, Before that, uh, I actually lived in a village of 2,000 people where I spent the first 10 years of my life doing my early schooling in the local uh, medium of language. And then I moved to Guntur, where I completed my high school and then medical school. So the incentive for me to choose ophthalmology was very simple. My father was an ophthalmologist. And uh, that was one thing. The second one uh, was that I Throughout my medical school, I did not find uh, any other subject more interesting than ophthalmology for me to have any kind of uh, dilemma in my mind to choose my specialty. So it was easy. So then the choice of uh, residency program at the All India Institute was the number one program at that time in the country. It actually continues to be. So I was fortunate to be selected for that program. So I went to Delhi to pursue that. And after completion of that, uh, I always had this desire to go to the US for advanced training and education. And uh, again, uh, after significant struggle, (laughs) I got a a cornea fellowship at Tufts under uh, Professor Jules Baum at that time. Uh, it was incredible. Uh, under Jules, uh, I have learned the infectious disease, had the fortune of working in the infectious disease laboratory of uh, a very renowned infectious disease specialist. 
And then uh, uh, that year was where I consolidated the practice of rigor in practicing ophthalmology, the foundations for which were built in Delhi. And uh, Jules was extremely rigorous in his approach to patient care, documentation, research, etc. So that helped me. But the only uh, uh, thing that I could not get enough of during that year was the experience with surgical uh, technique of corneal transplantation. So to gain more experience, I wanted to do another year of cornea fellowship. And at that time, one of the places where there was a significant volume of corneal transplants happening was in Rochester, New York, with Dr. James Akwagala. So I got into a fellowship with him for the second year. That's where I got uh, my training in microsurgery, in corneal transplantation, in trochlear lens implantation, and all that. And that's where I also began my very active research career, uh, working on the areas of corneal endothelium, uh, predominantly and clinically in contact lenses, uh, cataracts and intraocular lenses, corneal transplantation. And we were also one of the three or four groups in the country at that time in the US uh, performing keratoprosthesis. So that was another area where I had a few publications in those days. Uh, so together, uh, when I was about to complete my fellowship, Dr. Akwala offered me a position to stay on. And without uh, any further discussion, I accepted because I was having great time having that wonderful combination of uh, clinical care and research. So I continued in Rochester and began to work in the university. We had a cornea research lab, which uh, he gave me almost uh, full freedom to run. And there we set up uh, the scanning electron microscopy gifted by Bosch and Lohm in those days. And then we began to interact with uh, a faculty in the departments of anatomy, neurology, and all that got into several areas. Uh, and I was also involved with a gentleman called Manuel Del Cerro, one of the pioneers in the area of retinal transplantation. And in fact, he asked me to implant the retinal cells into the eye, even though I was a corneal surgeon, because Manuel was a good friend and he had trusted me with my surgical skills. And I was doing with him the area of corneal innervation, nerves and the narrow epithelial cell interaction research. So that was wonderful. And, uh, and I was also the medical director of the Rochester Eye Bank, where I got significant experience in eye banking through that role. So 10 years in Rochester. And my wife and I always wanted to go back to India because there was a lot of problem. We thought uh, even in a country as poor as India, we, we were the fortunate ones. Our families were the fortunate ones and maybe we should give back in our own little way. So that was the main uh, incentive for us to get back. And along the way in 10 years in America, I was inspired by many people. Outside of my two mentors, many people I interacted with, many leaders of eye institutes in the country. 
and many others in other areas of medicine. Inspiring stories, inspiring tales, inspiring way they built institutions like Wilmera Institute at Hopkins, Bascom Palmer, etc., etc. I used to read biographies and they always inspired me. I have had several conversations with leaders of all those institutions on how they built it. From that, I learned quite a bit. All that uh, gave me significant inspiration to, to think of starting an academic eye center, something along the lines of a US academic center. So that was the fairly simple dream. The only probably deviation or difference was that my wife and I were very particular if we went back to India. Whatever we do should be made available to everybody. Whether they are the poorest of the poor or richest of the rich whether they pay or don't pay for their services. Otherwise, there was no point keep getting back to India. And then an institute of the highest standards of tertiary clinical care, start education programs for training of professionals, get into research. That was the original dream or vision when we started. And that's how LV Prasad started? Yeah, the founding vision, in fact, was to reconcile excellence with equity. High quality care and the same quality care being available to all people. So that was the vision, founding vision and the values. So that's how LV Prasad got started. But the only thing a few months later that I thought was, we have, if somebody comes to us, under one umbrella, we have to make all eye care services available. At that point, without knowing too much about it, we also integrated rehabilitation of people with irreversible vision loss, both people with low vision as well as complete blindness. And that became a big signature program for us because in fact, I didn't realize at that time it turned out we were the first eye institute in the world to integrate rehabilitation of reversible vision loss people as an active component of an eye institute. Traditionally, all major institutes in the world refer them out to other organizations for, for that part of the care. So these were the four components and that's how we got started. In fact, the beginning of June, June 1 was our 34th anniversary. And along the journey in 34 years, we touched nearly 32 million people. And uh, we have evolved into a system of what we call pyramidal model of eye care delivery. Because five years into our journey, we began to realize even though we were offering our services to everybody, we were not really touching the people who need it most. And these people are in villages, rural areas, and remote rural and tribal areas. And they were not able to come to us. So we have to go to them. And at that point, and for a long time it continued, the tradition in India was to conduct massive eye camps, go and screen people in schools, etc. Right and bring them back to cities for any surgical requirement, or sometimes they were doing surgeries in the schools themselves with temporary operating rooms. I didn't want to do that because of issues of quality. 
So what we decided is whatever we do has to be high quality. That's that's a non-compromising value for us. And so we decided that looking at after five years, we have to create models of eye care at a secondary level in rural areas. A model of comprehensive eye care that would encompass prevention programs, diagnosis and treatment of disease, and then rehabilitation. All three components of comprehensive eye care. So we started out nearly 25 years ago in a small village in a remote part of the state with a population of 2,000 people, uh, very backward, one of the poorest districts in the whole of country. And that's what we intended to go to the poorest and the remotest part and start. Everybody thought I was going crazy. This fellow lost his mind. Uh, it would be a definite failure. But in fact, this past year, that center has served 50,000 plus outpatients, over 5,000 surgical procedures. 60% of them were completely non-paying. And then even with that, from the money we generated from the 40% paying patients, for operating expenses, we had a cost recovery of 110%. So that's the model that, that is required for countries like India. A model of high quality comprehensive care that is sustainable. So that's the model we created at the secondary level. We now have 22 such centers spread across predominantly three states, these states of Telangana, Andhra Pradesh and Orissa, with the one center in Karnataka. And then uh, about five years after that, the craziness didn't end there. Even with secondary centers, we thought we are not really reaching the remote rural and tribal areas. Yeah. How do we do that? Because no ophthalmologist would like to go there. No optometrist with a four-year degree would like to go there. Then we thought of primary care being provided by a one-year trained high school graduate we call them vision technicians with a permanent facility in these places with fully equipped exam room and these technicians providing primary care. Since uh, according to the study that we did in the late 90s, the Andhra Pradesh IDC study, the number one cause of vision impairment was uncorrected refractive error. And it also was the second most important, most common cause of blindness, uncorrected refractive error. And with that information, since that is the most one, we made sure that these technicians can do refraction and dispense glasses. So that takes care of more than 50% of the problem. Then the second thing is recognize potentially blinding disease. They can recognize that and then refer them to the next level. So that's how we started this one-year trained technician. They were all from the local communities with a career advancement opportunity. In fact, one of the first 10 that we trained ended up becoming a PhD from the University of New South Wales and became a leading contact lens specialist in the world. 
Several others completed their graduate programs in optometry and other leadership. They went into management. They went into work, work for optical companies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's very, very gratifying to see the careers of these youngsters coming from economically, socially, and geographically disadvantaged families right. and rising to the top. So that's what we did there. So all these members of the staff in both primary and secondary levels are recruited from the local rural communities. So that's a way of community participation and community partnership. So we have now 208 of these primary centers. And in the recent past, for the last few years, we have become made them technology-enabled with uh, several, several diagnostic tools, teleophthalmology, et cetera, et cetera. So they can, whenever they have a doubt, they can seek consultation. And we have command centers in our tertiary centers. That's where there is an ophthalmologist who is available. So the technician get to the command center and they can live show the patient clinical picture through images and seek an opinion and advise the patient accordingly. So through all this, and then we also do door-to-door -door surveys in the rural communities, screening programs of schools in those communities. So the model is every primary center serves a population of 50,000 people. And then 10 such primary centers are linked to a secondary center, which serves 500,000 people. And the distance is within a radius of 50 kilometers. And then they are then linked to the tertiary care. And in the past three, four years, we have begun to migrate as much tertiary care also as possible to our secondary centers. We have set up retinal lasers to take care of diabetic retinopathy. Then we began to do corneal transplants with our corneal surgeons from tertiary centers traveling to these communities once a month. The follow-up care provided by our ophthalmologist working in those centers who is well-trained in that care. And then they can also connect through teleophthalmology whenever they have a problem that they want to see consultation of the cornea specialist. With that combined approach of talent and technology, we are able to take the tertiary care like corneal transplant to our rural, rural areas. And recently we also began to do complex glaucoma surgeries, pediatric surgeries, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the model. And then those centers, we now have three, what we call tertiary centers. And then at the top is our Hyderabad campus. We call it the Apex Center of Excellence where we do anything that's done anywhere in the world by anybody. So that we have five tiers in the pyramid. At the very bottom, we deal with communities, rural communities, remote tribal communities, where we focus on a population unit of 5,000 people. We work with local health workers, local edu anybody educated in that community as our volunteer or as our representative. They help us in promoting eye health activities, in screening, and they also keep an eye on the people in those communities who have had any kind of interventions and make sure that they go back for follow-up. Then these are then linked to the primary care centers, which is located for every 50,000 people. 
those then are linked to the 500,000 secondary level printers where there are two or three ophthalmologists depending on the demand. And then they are then linked to tertiary sources. Tertiary and center of excellence provides all the manpower or human resources with the training programs. And these, our functionally, we have 10 segments. One is, of course, the clinical care. Second is rehabilitation. Third is education. Education, we train every carder that is required for eye care. At any given point, we have seven, 800 trainees on our campuses from all over the world. About three quarters are from India and one quarter from other countries. And uh, this, uh, we have so far from a three-day weekend continuing education program or workshop to a PhD program, we have now trained over 30,000 people of all cadres of eye care professionals. The third is research, where we have basic laboratory research, clinical research, public health research, uh, optics and visual psychophysics research, and more recently, patient reported outcomes research unit also has begun. So through all this, again, very productive. Our group uh, this past year has actually exceeded 500 peer-reviewed publications. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Also, thank you. They also get significant amount of grant support from all the Indian funding agencies. We also have some grants from the likes of NIH, the British Nationals, uh, NHRC, Welcome Trust, Australian government grants, etc. So through all that, and we have lots of collaborations with many institutions like Mass INDR, Wilsai Institute, Jefferson, University of Southern California, University of Rochester, etc. So we are very fortunate to have all those exciting collaborations with leading scientists in IK. And uh, the rehabilitation, of course, we have touched so far nearly 200,000 people all the way from rural areas where we train them to become self-sustainers. As simple as task as milking a cow to advanced technology training in the cities for the, uh, these people who have lost their sight. And some of them are now working for major technology companies like Microsoft. And one of them actually, in fact, is doing a PhD at MIT, one of our clients coming from that kind of a background. Mm -hmm. So that's again exceedingly gratifying. And we put in job placement, we secured for about over 500 of our clients like that who have problems with their vision. So the job placement, securing them jobs is an active component of our rehabilitation program. So this is the true meaning of uh, intervening uh, in a preventative case. And all these people earned uh, their opportunities only because uh, your foundation was able to intervene at the right time. Right. And then the other uh, big area, functional area, is capacity building of other organizations, both within India and in many other developing countries. And we helped about 250 organizations thus far. It's all the way from a simple blueprint for, a for their department or an eye center to training their people, to giving them systems, monitoring, 
etcetera etcetera and the next is uh, research i have already alluded to and then we now have technology innovation where we partnered initially with mit media lab and got into low cost high quality tech products for screening and diagnosis of eye disease there the vision is to make available the fruits of the best of technology to the most disadvantaged people in the world so that's the that part then the next part is eye banking when i came back as a corneal transplant surgeon from america everybody here told me forget about it in india nobody donates Yeah. So just focus on cataracts. Actually, that's what I was told. But we started with the support of an organization called International Federation of Eye Banks in Baltimore. A gentleman who, at that time, president was Frederick Griffith. Frederick was a gem of a man and a pioneer in eye banking in America. He was the one who first introduced the concept of grief counselors, hospital cornea retrieval in America. One of the pioneers in that area. so we borrowed that concept and set up the hospital cornea retrieval in our hospitals in the city and uh, today we are the biggest eye bank in asia with harvesting over 10000 corneas a year and we are in fact the biggest corneal transplantation center in the world over 3000 transplants annually and starting in a country where organ transplantation was considered impossible uh, this has been a significant achievement for Yeah, I didn't actually think about it, Dr. Rao. Um uh and it makes sense because of what uh, our culture denotes after death. Um so that that's actually very unique. Um I'd never yeah. heard about it and and thank you for for bringing that up. Yeah. And then the other area where we are very very active is advocacy, policy and planning. in advocacy we play a very important role at the national level at the global level i was the chairman of the board and ceo of international agency for prevention of blindness uh, i was involved from 98 to 2008 during the time of formation of the vision 2020 the right to sight program along with the world health organization so together with them uh, we started the global a initiative to eliminate avoidable blindness by 2020 so we were very active at that level at the local level we initiated national level vision 2020 state level vision 2020 programs in eye banking in primary care in so many other areas through all that effort the three states where we work have invested significant convinced the governments the policy makers invest money and in the past 3 4 years they have made investments to screen the entire population for vision defects we were very happy that we could finally get it done and then significantly ramp up the quality of the entire governmental systems of ophthalmic care so that's a, another a very gratifying thing and then in the planning both at the national and global levels again we many of us now i started out with this then many of our people are in who panels uh, iapb panels and several other international council of ophthalmology etc etc so it's been a, a very gratifying uh, glorious journey 
of 34 years and culminated last December uh, when, we, when we heard the news, which I never knew about it. Uh, there is this uh, Greenberg Award. Yes. Sanford and Susan Greenberg Award, which we shared with two other groups, another group in India called Arvind System, and then the University of Pennsylvania group outstanding achievement in controlling blindness in the world that was just and that was just in december 2020 right yeah that was the high point and uh, and uh, so and along the way many of our colleagues uh, received several accolades nationally globally etc and then the institute received several uh, awards recognitions for the past four years we are ranked as the number one eye hospital in the country and uh, our optometry school is ranked number one research output we are ranked number one rehabilitation we are ranked as the best rehabilitation institute in the country vision rehabilitation institute so we are very fortunate to have very dedicated and diligent team and then all this happened also because of the support we have received from friends all over the world in various ways. I always say with one of their three T's, time or talent or treasure or a combination of those. So that plus our team's hard work made us what we are today. Yes, definitely. It takes a, as as we've said in previous episodes, it takes a village to make uh, a doctor. It takes an even bigger village to make a community of, of change makers in healthcare. Um, and it seems like all the tears that you've described about LV Prasad have been so meticulous. And it seems like you've continued to make these sub tiers because you realized that at one point, your efforts weren't enough, and then you kept on building on that foundation. And I think this is a really great lesson for anybody who has foundations as big as yours to always be concerned about the smallest part of your of your organization, um, to always focus on that uh, small person who uh, I think the main goal was always to, to reach our, our healthcare to that person. Um, and then, of course, if we are able to reach those people, we can reach people with a lot more resources than them. Um, and I think that that has worked fantastically. And um, I, I certainly feel like during the pandemic, because of your model, it has certainly allowed continuity of care, which many organizations have struggled, especially not just in India, but in the United States as well, um, in terms of, you know, trying to make this uh make make our patients just aware of uh, of the fact that we're here to help them. Um, and I really liked uh, how you were able to train high school educated students uh, with this training of, of telemedicine and conducting these exams so that that continuity of care could be established. But more importantly, I think what, what always happens, and I may be wrong, um, so, so please correct me, but when we're in a village and we've grown up in that area, we know a lot better uh, about the people, the culture. And India is so diverse. Every, I mean, you could walk um, 
a couple thousand or a couple hundred kilometers and you'd be in a completely different environment, rules and structures, which is really difficult to understand for somebody who may be uh, born in the city or grown up around that area. Um, so, you know, that's that's something that uh, is very unique to India and perhaps not not just unique to India, but maybe more um, applicable to other parts uh, of the world. Um, because, you know, we, we haven't really focused on rural areas worldwide as much as we should. We haven't focused on, if I may use the generic word, on any neglected population. There's right. so many different types of neglected populations in all parts of the world, from America to Afghanistan, everywhere. Right. And there is no focus on them. And what we learned through our model is you have to delineate care to different levels. Like if you have a refractive error, seek care from large institutions in big cities. If we dissect the care and do that kind of thing, then the cost of care also comes down. So the way we do it is the principles are comprehensive care, non-compromising commitment to quality, closer to the doorstep of the people who need it most, community participation, and compassion. So these are the five C's that govern our system. And that is possible. And in the past two years, through this pandemic, the system of distributed care has paid us rich dividends. Because what we saw during the recovery process was, whereas our secondary centers and primary centers recovered very quickly, and in fact reached 120 to 180% of the pre-COVID volumes of patients, our tertiary centers took a long time. Even now, they are at 80 to 90% of the pre-COVID. So clearly showing people will not travel long distances in the future. People would probably prefer small centers. And so you have to go closer to them. You have to build small centers. We have to think twice if we are planning a huge humongous centers in the cities before we proceed with those plans uh, post pandemic. Because several lessons uh, through this pandemic that uh, distributed care is one of them. I, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, distributed care and deployment of technology that's available out there. I think, um, you know, that's, that's something that's really important because in the pandemic, we didn't realize that, I guess we never had the situation in the couple past decades, but a lot of uh, patients really wanted to be at their local, you know, clinic. I see it now, um, my education, you know, part of my rotations happen in a rural area. And when I was doing my ophthalmology rotation, people just did not want to go into the cities. That was pre-COVID and more so in pro like during COVID. Um, and they loved having that connection with their ophthalmologist who, you know, they knew, um, who loved the community um, and embraced the patients and had been seeing them for years and years. And so the only reason these patients, obviously vision is really important. Nobody wants to skip on that. But, 
you know, we always have non-compliant patients, patients who just don't want to come for whatever reason. And that reason was amplified, I mean, given more weight um, when the pandemic started. So when, you know, you have this good physician-patient relationship locally, you trust that they've implanted all the things um, for their safety and to be making everything convenient for them to reach the healthcare that they deserve. And you were asking me about what we did during the pandemic. Yeah. The first thing that we did was we sent out an email to all our employees, 3,000 of them, assuring them that their jobs are protected 100% and that their salaries are protected 100%. So that psychological anxiety was taken away, right? Right, right at the beginning from the team members. Then we began, we closed down our routine services and kept our institute open only for emergencies during the first month. And then we got to prepare our entire system to navigate through the COVID environment. So we made physical changes that are required within our outpatient services, operating rooms, inpatient areas. And then we created systems of safety for the staff and the, and the patients. We trained all the staff in this, in this kind of care so that nobody is exposed needlessly to this infection. So that one month, we set this system up in every respect to take care of the people through the period of the pandemic. Then we reopened in stages. First, for a couple of months, we, we had three shifts. All the staff were divided into three teams, vertically from the ophthalmologist down to the housekeeping. And they never mingled with each other and two days each per week. Then they, after a couple of months, we made it two teams, three days each. And then after the fifth month, we started reopening up and going up to the full services. That's, that's wonderful, yeah. yeah. One of the positive benefits of giving the assurance of jobs and salaries because we were one of the very few organizations that did that. So the entire group was very appreciative of that. And they offered to work seven days a week to recover. So we opened our services seven days a week when the full recovery has started. Mm -hmm. And then we ramped up and then slowly recovered our volumes slowly recovered our financial health and back to full activity before the second wave hit us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but at least you had a model to work with. Uh, so we are recovering from that much faster this time than the last time because we know how to deal with it. Yeah. Uh, and everybody was vaccinated in the meantime, so we are relatively safe. So with that, uh, this... And then during this time, we also developed a very high-end teleophthalmology system, the so-called Connect Care. 
Connect care essentially means is it connects the receptionist, the ophthalmologist, the electronic medical record system and the patient and the payment gateway. All are connected, integrated and it works beautifully. So we can provide both initial consultation as well as follow-up care to many of our patients so that they don't have to make frequent visits back to the hospital. So that again worked very well for us. We have now covered many thousand patients through all this approach. Because one thing that happens is at the level of tertiary care, we get patients from all over India. Now they are unable to travel, both for follow-up care as well as anybody who wants to seek a new consultation. So we're doing quite a lot of those through teleconsultation. And we, if there is a physical thing is required, we usually refer them to the specialists that are available in their neighborhood, where they live. So that worked. So technology element also. And the other thing that we did for education of our fellows, residents, optometry students and all, is uh, huge using every technology platform in education, webinars, interactive sessions, distance education of all types. And we have prepared tapes, videotapes, all this equal to about 40,000 hours wow. education material was prepared and education was delivered. And in research, everybody put their nose to the grind because they could not open the labs. They were home mm -hmm. and they were working. So they got back to all the manuscripts pending, all the writing they had to do. That's why we ended up with more than 500 man, uh, published papers. And uh, one good thing also was every clinician, clinical member of clinical faculty got into writing. A very positive and welcome development for us. Yeah. So 100% of our clinicians published during the last year. Hmm. That's been the dream since the inception. Every member of our faculty should also publish. Right, right. That was realized to full extent during the pandemic. There's opportunities that we that we fortunately could completely exploit. Yeah, I'm glad that you were able to see the silver lining uh, during yeah. such a grave pandemic, and that's that's really the type of leaders we need in the world to be able to use the opportunities um, of of any situation because there's the good and the terrible bad, but you know we can't always sit and just wait for opportunity to arise in a normal setting. Um, and that's, I think this is, this is why I think this podcast episode is so unique because you've taken um, a really uh, different situation and made, uh, made benefits out of it. Yeah. And the other area that we have, new initiative that we did was home care during this pandemic. We go to patients' homes and provide care, do the screening, provide care, even in rural areas, rural areas, communities which are uh, deprived, our technicians are going to their homes, particularly the elderly people, and providing them care at their homes. Mm -hmm. And the program in rural areas, we call it Silver Site. And then uh, we also now are on a large program 
Uh, we have a new strategic initiative called Institutes of Excellence in niche areas for the major causes of blindness in the world to create global resource centers in that area. So one area is elderly eye care. Mm -hmm. So we are creating tertiary centers and to link to that with the home care along with the technology. So that's again an exciting development and, uh, and we are now extending down to secondary and primary levels what we can do with the elderly population and how we provide care to them. Because even India, the population is aging now. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we, when we look at that possibility, we have to take care of it. One other new initiative, knowing what is impending, is the challenge of myopia in the world. It is projected by 2050, more than half the world's population will be myopic, 5 billion people myopic. So we are we have a full-blown myopia initiative with the myopia center, uh, which deals with the clinical care of uh, prevention and arresting myopia, all the way up to taking care of pathologic myopia, the retinal problems, the glaucoma, etc., and also myopia research, both public health and basic. So that's again another major initiative that we started in the last couple of years. That's wonderful. Um, yeah, those three things um, are probably one of the most uh, uh, new things that I've I've come across. Um, us watching the computer for so so much time, um, especially during the pandemic, uh, it would be interesting interesting to see how the um, children in the in Indian population has have kind of been affected, um, and how that trend is going to you know continue. Uh, post-pandemic. Yeah, we are, we are currently, currently advocating with our state's governments to bring about a policy for all the school-going children to spend at least an hour during the day outside in the open world. That's wonderful. Just as, just as it is mandated in countries like Singapore, China, Hong Kong, etc. So yeah. That, has to be done everywhere in the world in future. I love how uh, you included all the other countries as references. I think that's like the power of having international awareness uh, of yeah. knowing what other countries are doing better and to be able to adapt their good policies into your country um, so that your population and your generations after can be bigger and better, you know, and not worse than, than what we left behind. Yeah. Um, so my last question, um, you've, you've covered basically all of, all of the questions, and thank you so much for, for that. Um, but my last question, and, and for my listeners, um, what uh, have prior residents or fellows from the U.S. or other institutions uh, been able to do within LV uh, Prasad? Most of the ophthalmology trainees are in the clinical side. They spent time with our clinical services. They did some cataract surgery. And then a few of them were participated in our research projects. And uh, some of them did very well, actually. A couple of medical students published extensively from our data because one thing we have is huge data on everything because of our volumes. And uh, 
And now it becomes even more easy because we have our own in-house grown electronic medical record system. We just completed 10 years. So out of that, we are publishing several papers with a lot big data. So using all that data, some of them have published quite a bit. And a couple of them, I think, went to our rural centers and worked on some questions in the rural areas. So we usually give them a full choice of whatever they want to do when they come here. It's up to them. They have to choose. But once they commit, we insist that they should stick to right. the commitment. Right. Yeah, so you mentioned uh, medical students. So uh, you can start uh, you know, being involved with LV Prasad as a medical student, as well as a resident and a fellow. We get a lot of students from business schools from the U.S. Oh, wow. They are intrigued about our model, how we financially survive, taking care of so many people without charging them. All that is very, very intriguing uh, business model. So we had students from Harvard Business School, Stanford, Wharton, all that stuff, all the Johns Hopkins. So... A lot of interactions. I, I usually joke saying I get invited by more by business schools than medical schools. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is that is a feat. Uh, um, having so many patients being offered, you know, free service. That's, I mean, when you consider a, an institution made for populations who can't access it, the biggest uh, issue comes with, with the payment. Um, and, you know, we appreciate you from the world over. Um, for doing that. Uh, we're taught that, no, you can't sustain a healthcare system with free resources, but here you are uh, having crafted that. And I, I can truly see why business schools uh, come and see, learn from you, why that is, uh, how that even is able to be possible. Yeah, you guys, if you want to, your country can take care of all those without insurance free of cost. You have to just... Uh fine-tune your system yeah. <laughs> without spending more money. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, Dr. Rao, this has been a wonderful conversation, um, something that I never imagined I would ever get the chance of. Um, it's, I mean, uh, somebody who's been awarded the Padam Shri, it's, it's been my dream to interview uh, someone in, in ophthalmology who's had such a great recognition. Um, and I can't wait to see, you know, what more LV Prasad does because I feel as if you guys continue to expand and improve and meticulously see where deficiencies are. And I, I, I just hope that other models take, a rep, you know, replicate the same um, practice because that's what makes it, an organization continue to maintain quality and sincerity to the patient populations. Thank you. It's a pleasure talking to you and then interact. Whoever is listening. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Open Globe Talk. If you enjoyed this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Open Globe Talk. You can access audio recordings on our website, openglobetk.com, where we make our sessions available on Spotify, Apple, and Google. Our release dates are each Friday evening of the week we interview our guest speakers. We are incredibly appreciative of our listeners and hope you ride along to meet more inspirational figures in global ophthalmology. Thanks and take care.